All right, turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, and today we'll be looking at verses 17 to 24. Again, this psalm is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's entirely about God's law, God's word. And the psalmist is expressing his love and delight for God's word and gratitude for what God does through his word. And as we go through the psalm each week, we're examining the verses to see what they tell us about the law and the psalmist's relationship to God's law. And hopefully each of those verses help us then with some personal applications to our own lives. But then we're also zooming out to get the big picture of what the Bible teaches us about God's law in general. So each week we're identifying one principle about God's law. And then we're also looking at one case law as an illustration or example of it. And I think you'll find that the kind of collection of case laws that we look at today are very interesting and maybe helpful to us in understanding some things about maybe even some stories that are very familiar Bible stories that we might see in a little different way after viewing them through the lens of God's law. All right, so follow along as I read Psalm 119 verses 17 through 24. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Well, let's look briefly at each individual verse to see what the psalmist is saying. So verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. The psalmist here asks God to deal bountifully with him. That's simply a request that God would deal kindly with him, treat him in a way that will be for his good. And he recognizes that this is the only way for him to truly live. Now, the psalmist is alive, of course. He's like every other person is alive, like dogs and birds and fish are alive, and like trees and flowers and vegetables are alive. But what he's asking God for here is that he might share the life of God to be truly alive spiritually, to live in a way that God designed for him to live. And a vital part of that kind of living is keeping God's word. And keeping means obeying. Verse 18 then says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And here the psalmist is asking God to open his eyes because he recognizes that the only way to see or understand spiritual truth is that the Spirit of God reveals it to you. Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus, and he tells them that he prays that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, so that they can understand what God has done for them in Christ. That's the same idea as what the psalmist is praying here in this verse. And naturally, we don't have the ability to see spiritual things. But it's important that we recognize, as Charles Spurgeon said, that the veil is not on the book, but on our hearts. The problem's not with the Bible. 
Okay, it's not that the Bible is hard to understand, although that can sometimes be the case. Ultimately, the problem we have is our sinful hearts and minds. So when it comes to God's law, we know that we find it difficult to understand. We struggle to see how God's law would apply to us today. But if we echo the psalmist, then we won't complain about the law being unclear or mysterious. Instead, we'll admit that our problem is our own spiritual blindness. Now, what is it that the psalmist will behold in the law when God enables him to see? Well, he'll see wondrous things in God's law, he says. Ultimately, that's the wonders of the gospel. Paul, when he writes to the Romans, explains that now, in Christ, the righteousness of God has been made known. The righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then he says this. He says that the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, these wonders about Christ and the gospel are wonders that were hidden in the law all along but are now revealed by the Holy Spirit. So the prayer that we should pray, echoing the psalmist, is, according to Charles Bridges, he says, we should pray not give me a plainer Bible, but open my eyes to know my Bible. Not show me some new revelations beside the law, but make me behold the wonders of the law. Verse 19 then, I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. The psalmist recognizes there's a sense in which he's a foreigner on the earth. Because he's one of God's people, he sees the world differently than everyone else does. His worldview is different. His relation to God's law is different. And it's God's law that will give him the guidance that he will not get from anywhere else. Why are Christians like foreigners? Thomas Manton asks that question. He gives several answers. He says, first of all, we're born elsewhere. We're born from above, John says. And Paul tells the Galatians that Jerusalem above is our mother. Our inheritance lies in heaven, not here. Our family is from there. God's our father and Jesus is our brother. In the scope of eternity, our time here is like nothing compared to the time that we will spend in our true home in God's presence. So in one way, we're like pilgrims and travelers, and we should behave ourselves as such. So Jesus told his disciples in John 15, he said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the, the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Recognizing our status as foreigners on earth, the psalmist here seeks the solace, the comfort that comes from the direction that God's commandments can give him as a foreigner. Verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. And here again, we see the psalmist's strong desire for God's law. He's consumed with longing for it. Now, sometimes people have a desire to know God's word, to read it, but it's not a desire that lasts. Maybe it's a desire that's there because they're going through something difficult or because their conscience is bothering them. But when the trouble dies down, so does their passion for God's word. It was really 
fear that was driving them to God's word, not love. But the psalmist's desire is there, he says, at all times. In the days of the Reformation, there was a recovery of the word of God as it was translated into the languages of the common man. And that passion for God's word spread at that time. The city of Geneva in Switzerland, where Calvin pastored, took for its city motto the phrase post-tenebrous lux, which means after darkness, light. For the people of Geneva, the privilege of now having the word of God was like coming out of the darkness into the light. And we have that privilege today to a greater degree than God's people have had at any time in history. We have multiple Bibles in our homes. We have the freedom to buy it and to write about it and to read about it and to read commentaries and helps and have the Bible right there on our phone and in ebook and audiobook and to have sermons online and in the car. And, but just like when there's an easy supply of any product, the price goes down. So the value that we place on God's law often goes down because we don't understand the privilege that we have in our day. And so Bibles sit on the shelf unread. We listen to it casually, but our hearts and minds aren't fully engaged. We can even sit in church during the service and maybe have the Bible pulled up on our phone, but also answer texts and emails and be distracted by other things on our phone while the most important words in the universe pass us by. Thomas Manton writes, it's an argument or an evidence of a gracious heart when we can receive old truth with new affections. Isaiah, as he writes, he encourages the people to listen to God's words instead of the mediums and the necromancers, the, what he calls the wizards that chirp, the other voices that claim to speak authoritatively. And he exclaims, to the teaching and the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn, no light in them. Listen to the passion for God's word that is expressed in Isaac Watts' hymn, Laden with Guilt. See if this doesn't express what the psalmist is saying here. Laden with guilt and full of fears, I fly to thee, my Lord. And not a glimpse of hope appears but in thy written word. The volumes of my Father's grace does all my griefs assuage. Here I behold my Savior's face in every page. This is the field where hidden lies the pearl of price unknown. That merchant is divinely wise who makes the pearl his own. Here consecrated waters flow to quench my thirst of sin. Here the fair tree of knowledge grows, no danger dwells within. This is the judge that ends the strife where wit and reason fail. My guide to everlasting life throughout this gloomy vale. O oh, may thy counsels, mighty God, my roving feet command, nor I forsake the happy road that leads to thy right hand. Verse 21, 
You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. So the psalmist here takes note of the fact that God will deal with those who wander from his commandments. Now, sometimes men wander from God's commandments out of weakness. But oftentimes, people wander from his commandments out of outright rebellion. It's interesting to note, though, that they're wandering from his commandments, which means that they had at one time been recipients of his commandments. These insolent ones are proud. That's why they won't obey God's commandments. It takes humility to be obedient, to submit to the authority of God. King David was at one point in his life an example of this kind of pride. He took advantage of his position as king to take away a woman that didn't belong to him, to take her for himself, to have her husband killed, to get him out of the way. And when Nathan confronted him about it, Nathan said, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? See, David's disobedience was despising the word of the Lord, his rules and law. And examples like that should help us to take note, as the psalmist did, so that we don't wander from his commandments. Verse 22, take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Now, looking ahead and reading between the lines just a little bit, it seems that the reason the psalmist is facing scorn and contempt is because he's obeying God's law. How do you respond when obeying God's law puts you in a place where you're the oddball, where you're on the outside because of your commitment to Christ? There's a couple things we need to remember in those kinds of situations. First of all, God intends good for us. Trials and difficulties are like a forge in which steel is purged of its impurities and it's tempered and formed. The life of Joseph is, of course, an example of that. Joseph, you remember what he says to his brothers who sold him into slavery. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And second, God's judgment should matter to us more than man's judgment. If you're watching Olympic diving or gymnastics or figure skating or something like that, there are judges who award the prizes. The opinion of the crowd doesn't have any bearing on who gets a medal. The opinion of the crowd is meaningless in that sense. Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. And here's the key. It is the Lord who judges me. Echoing that idea, as he comments here on verse 22 in Psalm 119, Thomas Manton says, We shall never be resolute for God until we come to this, to count it a very small thing to be judged of man's judgment. Whose judgment matters to you? Are you determined to let the opinions of men be small in your estimation? The psalmist lives in light of what God thinks. And we should do the same. And the same idea then is continued in verse 23. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. 
again, the psalmist determines to care more about what God thinks than what man thinks. But here we have the added element that we're talking about powerful people, princes. Often God's people face opposition from the powerful people. Jesus faced it. Daniel faced it. Paul faced it. If we find ourselves with godly rulers, that's reason for rejoicing. But that's often not the case. God deals with a nation through their rulers oftentimes. If he gives them good rulers, it's because he's blessing them. If he gives them ungodly rulers who plot against them and fight against his law, it's because his curse rests on that people. I'll leave it to you to determine which of those is our situation today. But God also calls the rulers to obey him, to honor him. All human rulers are to submit to Christ. Psalm 2, the last three verses of it, calls to the powerful people. And it says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And Manton gives us this important reminder. There is a higher judge that sits in heaven, and if he pass sentence for us, when they pass sentence against us, we need to be the less troubled. While these powerful people opposed to God take counsel together against God's people, the psalmist will find his counsel elsewhere. We see in verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. God's laws are the best counsel we could find. We can't look to ourselves. Proverbs 28 tells us whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. But God's law gives us the counsel we need. Not just for part of life, but for every aspect of life. That's what we call the sufficiency of scripture. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way. It says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Now, <clears throat> that's not saying that Scripture will tell you how to cook cornbread or play Monopoly, but it teaches you everything you need to know to make good and wise decisions that please and honor God. Joel Beakey writes that since all human activity should aim at the glory of God, the Bible's a sufficient guide for pleasing Him in every facet of life. So with the psalmist, we should determine that God's laws will be our counselors. Well, in these verses this morning, we've seen that there is potential opposition to God's law and to those who seek to obey it from the princes of this world, the rulers, the powerful people. And the principle that I want to give you this morning has to do with the relation of God's law to the rulers of the nations. And here it is. God's law applies to all nations and people. God's law applies to all nations and people. Now, in past weeks, what I've done is take time to explain the principle 
and then give you a case law example from the Bible. I want to do that in reverse this week. I want to give you the case law example first, and then with that illustration in mind, we'll talk a little bit more about the principle to understand it better. So turn with me in your Bible to the book of Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21. Now we've looked at Exodus 22, and so just remember where we are at this point in the book of Exodus. The Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 20, and then chapters 21, 22, and 23 give case laws illustrating how to live in accord with those Ten Commandments. So as we begin chapter 21, we're looking at laws here that have to do with slaves, Follow along as I walk through these verses, and I'll explain some points along the way to help us. Exodus 21, let's start in verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Okay, this is speaking of God's people who have entered into debt slavery. Someone who couldn't pay a debt or faced financial distress so that they couldn't meet their obligations, they enter into service either to their lender or somebody pays off the lender and they enter into service to that person in order to pay off their debt. And they're treated as part of the family, but of a lesser status. This kind of slavery or service was limited to six years. After six years, they are to be set free. Okay, verse 3. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. So if the debt slave is married when he enters service, then when he leaves, he can take his wife with him. The master doesn't get to keep the wife, okay, at the end of the slave's service. That's the point there. Verse 4 if his master gives him a wife, so this is during the period of his slavery now. If the master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he, the debt slave, shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So here we see that if he's single when he enters service, and while he's part of the household, he marries another slave, he can't leave with her at the end of his six years, okay, because she was part of the master's household, unless he redeemed her, unless he bought out her service, but the chances are, since he's just finished paying off his own debt, he's not in a position to do that. His other option, then, is to stay and become a permanent slave, part of the household. Verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since, she has broken faith, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. So, if the master takes her as wife, she stays. If he changes his mind, she can be redeemed and freed. Now, that's for her protection and safety. Okay. 
so that she's cared for. He's not permitted to sell her to foreigners. She must be allowed to stay with her people. And if she's going to become his son's wife, if that's the reason that he has her, then she gains the status of a full family member. So all of these protection, all, all these provisions here are for her protection. Verse 10, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Again, this is for her protection. If the master takes a second wife, he can't decrease his care for the first wife who had been a slave. If he does choose to reduce her lifestyle, then he has no more legal claim on her and she goes free. And one more verse here. Skip down to verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So man stealing is outlawed completely. That means when you hear the Bible regulating slavery, it's never man-stealing or kidnapping or chattel slavery that is in view. Now turn over with me to Deuteronomy 15, just briefly. Okay, so this is three books later, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15. The word Deuteronomy means second law. It's the second giving or second statement of the law. It's kind of a recap, but at times it expands on what was given earlier as well. Deuteronomy 15, and we'll start in verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. Okay, so that's the same as what we already heard. But now, <clears throat> now look what's added to it. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress, as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. So when the debt slave is freed, the master must give him gifts. He doesn't go empty-handed. He gets animals from the flock. He gets grain from the threshing floor. He gets wine from the winepress. He's being given what he needs to be able to go out and make a life for himself, to get back on his feet, to get a fresh start. Now jump down to verse 18. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So the idea there is you're supposed to be generous when the slave leaves, and if you do, God will bless you. Okay? So these are the laws regarding slavery. Now that we have that overview of the laws, kind of regarding debt slaves, I want you to think with me about the story of Pharaoh as God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. And what I'm going to share with you here has been written about by James Jordan. I'm following his line of reasoning here pretty closely. I just want to give credit where credit is due. And I'll put up some of the verses on the screen so that you don't have to turn to each one. But I encourage you to read it yourself later. So we're listening in the story for how God prosecutes his case here against Pharaoh. On what basis does God judge Pharaoh? If you remember the story, 
Joseph brought his family down into Egypt. They flourished there. But as the generations passed and about 400 years go by, eventually a pharaoh came to power who did not know or remember Joseph. And he got worried about this fast-growing group of people, the Israelites. And in order to prevent any possible threat, if they were to turn on the Egyptians, Pharaoh decides that he will act first and he will enslave them. So Exodus 1 tells us, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. What we see here is a violation of Exodus 21:16, the verse that we read where God prohibits man-stealing or forcibly enslaving someone. And what's the penalty that we saw in that verse? Well, the penalty for that is death. It's a capital crime. Now, as the story continues, God works through Moses to demand from Pharaoh the release of the people of Israel that he's enslaved. And what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh refuses. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly how long they remained enslaved, but it had to be quite a long time because they built two entire cities, Python and Ramses, and it was long enough that while they were still in slavery, they multiplied greatly and became even more of a potential threat. That would take a little time. So this is a great number of years we're talking about. So this is a violation of God's law in Exodus 21 verse 2, that God's people could not remain as slaves for more than six years. Then Pharaoh relents, and he says that the men may leave, but not their families. In Exodus 21.4, we saw that if a master gives wives to a slave and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and the children belong to the master, the male slave may leave, but by himself. So this tells us something about Pharaoh's mindset. In his thinking, he was the one who owned the wives and the children. Since he was king of Egypt, he had a legal claim to them in his mind. But this was not really the case. When, Je when Joseph's family came to Egypt, his father, Jacob, brought with him women and children. They entered the land as an existing family. So instead of applying the law where the women and children have to stay with the master, the, the law we really should apply here is Exodus 21, verse 3. The verse we read that says that if a slave brought a wife with him into service, she may leave with him. Now, we eventually see, as the story keeps going, that it's a mixed multitude that leaves Egypt. That means that some of the Egyptians had married some of the Israelites. They had adopted the Israelite God and they were now part of the Israelite family. So now does the law of Exodus 21.4 apply to them that they have to stay while the freed slaves go free? No, because think about this. Exodus 21.10 and 11, verses we read now come into play. This is the law that says that if the master 
reduces the lifestyle of a female slave because she's fallen into disfavor, she may go free. So any Egyptians who had become Israelites and had been subject to hard treatment or harsh service fall under this law. The text even specifically tells us that Pharaoh reduced their rations of straw for making bricks. So they too are free to go. Now, as the story continues, God tells the Israelites in chapter 3, he says, I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. Remember what we saw in Deuteronomy 15? When a slave fulfills his service and is set free, the master is to send him out with gifts of animals and grain and wine. Well, here in Exodus 13, we find that the Egyptians gave the Israelites even more gold and silver jewelry and clothing. Remember also that God had said, if a master follows God's laws and sends the slave out with gifts, God would bless him. Well, in Exodus 13, when finally Pharaoh does relent and let the people go, here's what Pharaoh says. He says, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Pharaoh thought he should be blessed because he's sending them out with gifts. But Pharaoh would not be blessed because he had not obeyed God's law. He has the concept in his mind, though, enough that he asks for blessing because he's letting them go with gifts. You may remember the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. <clears throat> After Hagar gave Abraham a son at Sarah's suggestion, Sarah turned on Hagar and wanted her gone. And so Abraham sent her away. And the reason Sarah gave was this. She said, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Fear of the slave inheriting the wealth away from the family led to the slave being sent away. Well, in Egypt, Pharaoh had already expressed his concern that Israel would take away the wealth and power of Egypt. So when God argues with Pharaoh about Israel, what is it that God says? What's the basis in Exodus 11, God explains to Moses, he says, when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. The language of driving away is the exact same language that is used to describe the slave wife, Hagar, being driven away. And as the Exodus itself begins and the people leave Egypt, Moses says to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. And by the end of the story, Pharaoh faces the death penalty from God, capital punishment for man stealing. He's drowned in the sea because he enslaved the people of Israel. Now, why do I go to all the trouble to walk you through that story? Well, here's the point. God clearly tells us the story of his confrontation with Pharaoh 
in language that shows the violations of Pharaoh against God's laws regarding slaves. But those laws that we read in Exodus 21 were not written down as part of Israel's law until after the Exodus. But God's clearly holding Pharaoh accountable for violating those very laws. And Pharaoh's arguments with Moses, his reasoning, his attempts, for example, to let the men go, but not the women and the children, all of that only makes sense if we presuppose that Pharaoh knew these laws. And why would that be the case? Why would Pharaoh know these laws before they were ever given at Mount Sinai? Why would God hold a Gentile king accountable for what would become Jewish laws? Well, there's a lot of debate about when exactly the Exodus took place, but the generally accepted dates, if you work backward from the Exodus to the time of Joseph, you find that Joseph probably arrived in Egypt less than 200 years after the death of Shem. Think about that for a minute. Shem was Noah's son that all of Israel is descended from. The knowledge of God and his laws that had been in the world before the flood came through the flood with Noah and his family. Since everyone in the world is descended from Noah and his family, it's entirely plausible that God's laws were generally known throughout the world. In fact, it actually makes great sense of why there is such significant overlap in the law codes of various people groups in the ancient world. They have a common source, God's law, revealed to people before the flood. Now, Sure, that law has been distorted and degraded in certain ways over time, but the common law throughout the ancient world would have originally been derived from God's laws. The pharaohs in Egypt were not that far removed from the time period when Noah's family was still living on the earth. Listen to these comments from James Jordan as he explains this idea. He says, thus there was doubtless much godly influence all over the ancient world until well into the history of the seed people Israel. The mixing of God's law with local customary law is called common law. And considering that at the outset, right after the flood, God's law was the only law, it is reasonable to assume that at this point in history, there was still a strong common law. The law codes of the ancient world are at many places quite similar to the laws recorded in the Pentateuch. Again, evidence of a common source, Noah and behind him, God. The pagans, of course, increasingly perverted and lost God's law. In the case of Egypt, however, we must also reckon with their earlier conversion and the influence of Joseph, who ruled Egypt in all but name for 80 years. Thus, there's every reason to believe that Pharaoh's concept of right and wrong, and therefore his legal beliefs, were still under the influence of God's law. Okay, now we come back to our principle. God's law applies to all nations and people. Our story in Exodus illustrates this point, this principle. Before God's law was ever given in written form at Mount Sinai, before the Ten Commandments were 
literally set in stone, God held Pharaoh accountable for violating his law. And the same principle is still true today. There's no reason it wouldn't be. Don't miss the point. The law was in the world prior to Mount Sinai. We considered last week the fact that if Adam had murdered Eve in the Garden of Eden, this would have been a sin. Even though the only law that God had given them was to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, God's law was written on their hearts and they knew that law. So today, what we looked at, we saw that God held Pharaoh accountable for violating his laws about slavery prior to Mount Sinai. Let me give you just one more example, very briefly. You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? God's judgment fell on those cities because they broke God's law. Genesis 13 tells us that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. In fact, in the New Testament, when Peter writes his letters and he talks about this, he's talking about how Lot, who was who escaped from Sodom, how Lot was an example of how God rescues the godly from trials. Here's what Peter says. He says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. And then he gives this comment. For as that righteous man, Lot, lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Peter specifically calls the deeds of the men of Sodom lawless. They were violations of God's law. What was the sin of Sodom? Homosexuality. It's where we get our word sodomy. And Peter says it was lawless long before God gave his laws regarding homosexuality in Leviticus. So the law was present and people knew it and they were held accountable for it all before Mount Sinai. Greg Bonson notes that the statute that Sodom was specifically guilty of violating was not one of the 10 summary commandments, but a specific and particularized case law, the prohibition of homosexuality. So the law, before the written law, the law of God, was in the world prior to Mount Sinai. Now, our principle remains true after God's law was written at Mount Sinai as well. All nations and people throughout the rest of the Old Testament are still held accountable to obey God's law. J.H. Bavink comments on it this way. He says, it's striking how frequently the other nations are called upon in the Psalms to recognize and to honor God. And how complete is the witness of the prophets against the nations surrounding Israel. God does not exempt the nations, other nations, from the claim of his righteousness. He requires their obedience and holds them responsible for their apostasy and degeneration. City of Nineveh would be another prime example here. Or we could turn to just about any of the prophets who deal with foreign lands. God holds them accountable for their violations of his law. And when we come to the New Testament, 
The same thing remains true. John the Baptist, for example, confronts the unbelieving Herod Antipas, who has wrongly taken his brother's wife, and listen to what John specifically says. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod was an unbeliever, but John held him accountable for breaking God's law. There's a video clip floating around the internet this week of Andy Stanley, pastor of a large church in the Atlanta area, apologizing, and I'm summarizing here. You can go check it out, though, and see it for yourself. Apologizing to unbelievers on behalf of Christians who have told these unbelievers that their behavior is wrong. He says Christians shouldn't say that because it's none of our business. Those are family rules, he says. And we shouldn't expect someone who's not part of the family, doesn't even want to be part of the family, to obey the rules. Well, someone forgot to tell John the Baptist. You see, that's a completely unbiblical approach to God's law. God holds all nations and all men accountable everywhere to his law. Jesus Christ has been made King of Kings and Lord of Lords. After his resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He already right now has all authority. It has already been given to him by God the Father because of his death and resurrection. And Jesus' followers are supposed to teach them to observe. They go, first of all, the word is therefore, right? There's a reason because of the authority. Now you go and you make disciples of all nations. All nations are to follow Jesus. And Jesus' followers are to teach them to observe or obey all that he's commanded them. Well, what has Jesus commanded? Think, for instance, what we've already seen in the Sermon on the Mount. He repeats God's law. He gives the true understanding of God's law. That's what he commanded them. Keep God's law. And all nations, all men everywhere are accountable to obey it. We looked briefly at a couple of verses from Psalm 2, but Psalm 2 makes this whole thing very clear. Just listen to the words of this psalm. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's his anointed? That's Jesus. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who has God set as king? Jesus. God has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. God has made the nations Jesus' inheritance. The nations belong to Jesus. And they are accountable to obey his rule, to obey God's law. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Which kings are being spoken to here? Is it the kings of Israel? No, it's the kings of the world. The rulers of the earth. Every king, every ruler, every powerful person, every government official in every nation on earth is accountable to serve the Lord with fear. To kiss the son lest he be angry. In other words, to bow the knee and obey God's law. God's law applies to all nations and people. As we continue to walk through Psalm 119, I, I hope you hear the personal applications as we go verse by verse. Keep and obey God's word. Explore the wondrous things of God's law. Live faithfully as a sojourner here on earth. Long for God's rules. Passionately desire his law. Don't wander from his commandments. Keep his testimonies. Meditate on his statutes. Take counsel from his word. Those are the ones we saw just this morning. But I also hope you're getting the big picture of how God's law, how God views his law and what God's expectations are for every person in this world. If we, as his people, want to live effectively in the world, if we want to think rightly about our families, about our church, about our nation, then we need to understand the all-encompassing demands of God's law. Don't be embarrassed to say that God's law is the standard. God's law applies to all nations and people. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider these verses this morning and we see how the psalmist is absolutely, completely dedicated to your word, I pray that you would teach us to do the same. For all of these personal reasons that we've seen about, about loving your law and your law being our counselor, the, the one that guides us and, and gives us life. But also beyond that, that we would understand your law as it relates to our families and our church and to our nation. That there would be a recovery of your law and, and that people would bow the knee, that, that we would have a renewal of people who are determined to obey your law. That we would seek your face and that we would find blessing when we repent of our sin and when we obey what you have said. Help us as your people to be examples in this world. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.